Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. It's been a historic time for government bonds. A resilient economy is putting pressure on treasuries, with the U.S. 30-year reaching its highest point since 2011 and the 10-year reaching its highest peak since 2008. If these elevated levels remain and inflation fails to fall further, policymakers will have to decide if more rate hikes are needed. So which factors may be favorable in today's market environment? Etienne Jonca Bouchard, Fidelity ETF strategist and host of the ETF Exchange podcast, joins host Pamela Ritchie on the show today to share where he is seeing opportunity. Etienne highlights recent trends in global government bonds, including rising yields and inflation concerns. Etienne emphasizes the importance of considering factors as a way to navigate the business cycle and explains how various factors and bonds are incorporated into Fidelity ETFs to provide a diversified solution for investors. Among other topics, he also touches on the potential impact of inflation, consumer behavior, and upcoming earnings reports on the markets, discusses the potential implications of global monetary policy shifts, and shares his views on the relevance of sustainable investing in the current market landscape. Take a listen. This podcast was recorded on August 17th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So the Canadian inflation mm -hmm. picture was not what all investors either hoped or perhaps thought. Um, your thoughts on that? Were you surprised at the reaction ultimately? Um, I guess yes and no. And, and you know, I, and we, when we say inflation was a bit higher than, than expected, if you will, uh, you know, it's slightly above 3% for the last month in Canada. It was down to 2.8%, which is kind of, you know, we're, we're slow, we were slowly getting closer and closer to uh, the 2% target uh, from the Bank of Canada. But uh, like you mentioned, obviously markets reacted in a, in a quite big way. Uh, bond yields uh, you know, jumped up quite, quite heavily. And that was pretty much across the curve. It was, yes, long-term rates. Uh, but even on the short end, also a little bit with potentially, uh, you know, another rate hike being priced in slowly to, uh, I guess, the, the futures market. Uh, I don't think the market right now has drastically changed their expectations from a rate standpoint quite yet. Uh, I think there's going to be a little bit more proof to be shown that the economy is showing resiliency. Uh, I think in the U.S. is also a little bit of a different picture than in Canada, where, um, you know, and I know our asset allocation team. Uh, in their more, most recent paper, but also, you know, when, when we hear them speak on, on, on things like Fidelity Connects, uh, you know, obviously uh, more pessimistic on the Canadian side than on the U.S. side, uh, given the level of debt that we have for, for households in Canada and obviously having a much more sensitive housing market, given the fact we're on, for, for the most part, either, you know, five-year fix or, you know, even, you know, in this case, uh, worse scenarios, if you're in variable and you're already seeing the effect of those higher rates uh, for your mortgage payments. So, uh, from an ec economic standpoint, you know, it, it's it's not ideal to have inflation this high. From a market standpoint, well, obviously, uh, you have bonds sold off a little bit. And then from an equity perspective, you know, things like value value stocks, uh, more defensives uh, did, did a bit better. So they did so, a bit better. And I mean, where would you place us ultimately in the business cycle to just to kind of get a sense of 
Yeah. Okay, we're bouncing around here with some of these inflation reports. Um, we are, as we've talked about, historically high levels for, for the rate story, for yields. Um, what does this mean for the business cycle placement? Uh, we are somewhere, and you know, for both the U.S. and Canada, and then even Europe and developed uh, international, would probably be somewhere between a late cycle and a, and a potential recession phase. And when we say recession, you know, it's not we don't know exactly what that means or looks like exactly. Obviously, from a technical standpoint, it's you know GDP growth contraction, but uh, in terms of the depth, if you will. Uh, but we're definitely expecting and seeing already a slowdown in economic activity. Uh, we're also seeing earnings growth uh, likely to be slightly negative uh, between now and, I guess, if you will, the end of 2023 mm-hmm. to the tune of low single digits, which is historically weak, if you will, for a recession period, which is usually you see earnings uh, declines, if you will, by the tunes of 10% or more. Uh, so it's we're kind of expecting or the market is expecting a slowdown, but not necessarily uh, uh, you know, a strong contraction. But for us, it doesn't really impact the way we want to position ourselves, which is in this case, looking at more defensive factors like high quality, low volatility, and to a certain extent, momentum, because momentum has already started to shift to what's done well more recently, which is the quality space, as well as uh, the low volatility space. So a little bit more unique where uh, it seems like we've been in this environment uh, you know, for, for a little while. So yeah, those are the factors that we're looking for right now. I wonder if I can just sort of... Uh, push back on it a bit because you'll hear enough people at the moment saying, look, even if there is going to be some version of, of a recession, and, and again, there seems to be more calls for a shallow recession than a deep recession, but yeah. anyway, you'll, you'll have an opinion on that. So the idea is that though the things that are cheap, the so-called value um, perspective on the markets, you could sort of get in there, it's cheap, and, and just go down a bit, but hang on, and things will sort of come mm-hmm. through on the other side. But what do you say to that? Because the positioning that you're mm-hmm. describing actually is not that. Yeah, so, and this is kind of the, the, how could I say, the bull and bear type of you know clash, is that from a fundamental standpoint, about some, some of the value space from a valuation perspective is attractive. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work. It doesn't, it doesn't mean because things are cheap that they necessarily rally. What we found historically is the best driver for performance from factors is earnings revisions and uh, where earnings are going. And if you look at so far this year, the best on a relative basis, the, the factors that have had the best earnings revisions relative to the broad market are more defensive factors like quality, low volatility, and even momentum to a certain extent. So value, albeit, is very cheap on a historical perspective. And just to kind of explain this a bit better for our audience, value by design, you're always picking cheaper stocks than, say, your broad benchmark. But how big of a discount do you have? And right now, yes, you still have a very large discount relative to history. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how those more cyclical sectors, which find themselves in in value factor products or in the value space, so whether you think energy, uh, you can even think financials to a certain extent, how will earnings develop as we continue to see the slowdown and also the impact of of inflation because uh, inflation, what it will go after is not necessarily the top line. It's well, actually, it's actually probably helping the top line from a from a nominal standpoint. It's it's where the margins go, right? And and I think with quality, the interesting thing is specifically is you, anyways, at Fidelity, we use a metric to score our quality factor. That is the standard deviation of earnings per share. And so you know we're, we're trying to look at companies that have fairly stable earnings throughout given phases of the business cycle. So. That's something that kind of helps us. But 
on the flip side, to, to, you know, what you were mentioning, Pamela, is that if you look at areas like values, like value stocks, small caps, uh, emerging markets, you know, maybe it's not what works necessarily right away, but the entry point isn't bad either, right? So uh, maybe you have to just be a bit more patient, but at the same time, it hasn't rallied like growth and tech and, you know, comm services and some of those uh, segments of the market so far this year. So, so you know, diversification sort of a, maybe. It's a dance <laughs> there. And um, I wonder if you sort of in the context of what you just said, you, you've talked about what has performed well in terms of, uh, you know, quality, a slightly more defensive side of of things. Where have you seen the flows? Where what Give us a sense of that landscape. Yeah, no, it's actually quite interesting because usually what we see in terms and I'll, I'll you know, focus more on the ETF industry. Obviously, I'm biased. That's the, the space I work in, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it'd be very similar for funds. Uh, but, you know, if you look at it from an equity standpoint, it's actually the first time. I, I don't want to say since I started in this role, which is about five years ago, um, but we've seen outflows for U.S. equities, reg regardless of the performance that we've seen. And you know, it's, it's, it's done very well. And, you know, if you look at the, the more growth you add into your benchmark, whether it's like a uh, Nasdaq versus an S&P 500 versus a Dow Jones index, for example, uh, albeit the performance has been really good. You've actually seen outflows there and you've seen inflows into international markets, which have underperformed for the better part of a, of a decade, uh, but, you know, saw a strong rebound in Q4 of last year and had a lot of bad headlines and a lot of, you know, bad news priced in, if you will, where, you know, we didn't know, you know, at a certain point, you know, if they were going to meet their energy needs for the winter and, you know, now, now you go forward and, you know, things have, you know, uh, figure themselves out and, and you're actually seeing earnings uh, earnings growth 12 months out actually slightly higher than what's expected for the U.S. So you're seeing somewhat of a shift there, uh, U.S. to international. It's also a category that's, you know, very underweight in most Canadian investors' portfolios. So that's maybe a good thing, right? So kind of rebalancing towards a mean that if you look at our managed solutions on the ETF side or on the fund side, we actually have more international than the average Canadian, if you will, in their portfolios. So that's something that we've seen. Um, and then, you know, from the fixed income perspective, what's interesting is you're actually starting to see a shift from short duration to longer duration bonds, which what we think makes a lot of sense also for the current environment. So tell me um, a little bit about how you would describe um, the all in ones. We, we've talked about this. We might we might bring this up again in a second. But again, in terms of either performance flows, like where, where is sort of the popularity there? Yeah. No, that's another, another category that we've highlighted in the past, you know, on Fidelity Connects even last year, which is uh, the multi-asset category or the, you know, ETF portfolios, you get this diversified turnkey solution that rebalances for you, does all these great things and, you know, gives you a split of equity and fixed income to do the tune that you'd like. You can get 60-40 and 80-20, you, know, uh, you know, you get various mixes. Those solutions continue to be popular. Um, and obviously here at Fidelity, we have our all-in-one ETFs that we've, there's a lot of stuff. Actually, we can explain this, these solutions that we've developed, which is the culmination really of, of, you know, work that we started back in 2018 when we initially launched ETFs here at Fidelity Canada was to have enough building blocks to create these really diversified, complete solutions that, you know, we were showing this, uh, the, the movements through the cycle earlier with a product like this we're kind of taking control of that for you and making sure that you have diversification throughout and not necessarily making a tactical decision to allocate to a factor. Like, for example, we mentioned, you know, we prefer uh, or we, you know, we like factors like quality and low volatility right now. Doesn't mean we don't want to own value. 
and we don't want to own momentum, for example. So we want to, uh, the idea here is we want to capture the long-term strategic alpha that we can generate with the various factors, which is, you know, will range between about 1.1 to 2.4% over 20, 25 year periods. That's from a, you know, historical standpoint, obviously. So no, no prediction here. It's just what's uh, been generated in the past. Capture that, pair it with some good fixed income solutions and uh, to provide this really diversified portfolio. When, when we talk, you mentioned before sort of, you know, just this idea of value. Um, I mean, the last six months have been kind of the opposite in the equity markets, if we go into the equity market. So, so the value trade, as you say, has, has provided some cheap opportunities. You mentioned small caps. Um, let's just kind of go back into that uh, and to, you know, where, at what point, for instance, that might be of interest to putting into either the all-in-ones or, or investors might look to an ETF just to kind of hold some of those things. I'm getting at where things might fit going forward based on where you think we are and how cheap certain things are and, and the potential yeah. for growth. Well, um, so one interesting area I think that um, we started talking a lot more about is, you know, obviously we're right now we're focused on kind of navigating through this potential recessionary phase, definitely late cycle phase, that's no doubt, um, and making sure we have defense there uh, when it's needed. But eventually when we roll over to the early cycle phase, you will want to be looking at adding the more higher beta uh, factors, those that have more cyclic cyclicality to them, like small caps, which is size, if you will, like value. Uh, that are going to see stronger earnings revisions as the economy improves. And that's exactly basically what we saw in 2021, uh, or I guess end of 2020, 2021. And then to a certain extent, 2022, not for small cap, but for value, just because it was a hedge against valuations, right? Like if, if, if when you had uh, a bunch of rate hikes being, uh, I guess, priced into uh, to the market, obviously value, if you're trading at a significant discount, will be less sensitive given you know the, the the value of that stock is more derived on current assets current cash flows and less on the future you're not discounting it at a much higher rate it's already worth something whereas a lot of those growth names uh were obviously took a massive haircut because you were you know basing your valuations on revenues and earnings you were going to generate uh more specifically earnings obviously with regards to valuation models but looking at 10 15 20 years out well, all of a sudden, if you you're discounting that at a four percent instead of a one and a half percent, well, you know maybe you don't want to pay that much for those future cash flows. So, uh, going back to value, I think it, it definitely is a more of an early cycle play, but at the same time, can act as a hedge right now if we continue to see inflationary pressures and we see rates pushing to the upside, which is not our base case expectation, but could potentially happen right now. It could potentially happen. What, what do you find, going back to sort of where things fit, so the all-in-ones, we could bring that, like, okay, is that core, for instance? Uh, tell, yeah, tell okay, how, yeah, some that's of the ETFs great point. Where they might fit for investors, um, yeah. Yeah, so the all-in-ones are meant to be absolutely core. That's why you get exposure to four various factors. You've got, you know, investment-grade Canadian bonds, you've got, uh, you know, global multi-sector approach in our global core plus bond ETF, which is an allocation there. It's meant to act as a core. And now the way in terms of how it fits in a portfolio, that truly depends on each advisor and investors. Well, for an advisor, their business and the way that they run it with regards to whether it's models, whether it's model portfolios, discretionary, non-discretionary, et cetera. There's a way to incorporate these, you know, for pretty much every type of scenario. And what we've seen the most of is using this for, for registered accounts for investors that are starting out, right? If you're starting to invest, uh, you're generally a bit younger. 
and you're generally more tuned to also ETFs. And these solutions are also available in fund series. So regardless of the license that you have as an advisor, you can use these for your clients, right? You can use the combined series B, series F, or as a direct ETF and use them as a core. You can bolt on, you know, some other managers, some other stocks, some other bonds, et cetera, whatever you want to do, but you can really build a portfolio around this, the, these, these, uh, these ETFs. So let's so say, that, that's, yeah. sorry, carry on, pardon me, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, Pamela. Well, I was just going to say, so, so the advisors you're speaking to today, I mean, they know how to speak to their clients. There's a big discussion about a transfer of generational wealth. So perhaps good for, for someone beginning or, or, you know, maybe clients wanting to have a conversation about what to put in an account for, for one of their um, children and so on. What, what would you say? How would you explain, I always like going back to this, why do you want to talk about factors rather than sectors, for instance? So you're, an, you're mm. here you are, you're an investment advisor, you're saying, listen, we're going to look at these factors and you see the eyes glaze over, but they understand, for instance, what industrials are. Just just kind of come back to the beginnings of why we need to talk mm -hmm. about factors as, as another way of looking at the markets. Yeah, and you know, it really depends I'm putting my, myself in the shoes of an advisor, right? Then, you know, we're, we're talking about factors here. We're explaining, you know, long-term uh, a factor is just a way to separate different types of companies and to isolate them into buckets that if we buy cheap companies over time, it's worked. It's out. It's helped us add alpha versus a broad-based benchmark. If we pick companies that have higher margins quality, generally those companies will outperform over the time. So that concept is fairly simple. Like if we pick stocks based on these, you know, very simple characteristics and we repeat that over and over and over again, we likely win. Now for an, an advisor explaining that to an investor, that's a different conversation, right? You, you, you have to make it more tangible and explain it. And I, the, the way that I think is, is the best is to explain it in a risk reward framework where you're able to get the best of various parts of the market. So instead of buying the entire market, why shouldn't I buy the best cheap companies, the best profitable companies, the ones that have the highest momentum, and you know, for example, the ones with the lowest volatility to help protect. So it's just a, a way to describe various parts of the market and to show that we're getting a bit of the best of everything. So instead of just buying every single name out there and you know, potentially, yeah, you're going to get the, you know, the, the top heavy stuff in the indices that have pulled them up over the past decade, 15, 20 years. But you're also able to eliminate a lot of the less desirable names that don't necessarily have a de defined investment thesis. And uh, I often also get the question is that, okay, you're buying four different factors. At the end of the day, aren't you just buying the index? No, not really. Because <laughs> no. And that's the great part about factors is that you often get, um, I guess, two different methodologies, right? Because at the end of the day, this is a methodology, you know, we pick based on this, this, and this metric that tell us to buy the same stock, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that a value name won't be a quality name. It doesn't necessarily mean that a low volatility name won't be a momentum name. Right. It's basically allowing us to avoid companies that are just average, right? Or that don't display a defined investment thesis. So I guess an example, and not a stock example, I don't want to I'm not in the business of making uh, stock, you know, <laughs> stock analysis, stock predictions. But when you look at just a company that, for example, would not be cheap on a valuation perspective, it's not very profitable. It hasn't really performed well, so it's not momentum, and it's quite volatile. Like you don't really want to own that that name, right? Dividend? Because the, does it have a dividend? This pretend company. 
It could, it could, maybe not. But let's say it scores well on one factor, but it's not even in the top decile or quartile, and then it's really not scoring well in the others. It's not really going to help us in the long term in any given way because it's not going to protect when rates go up valuation. It's not going to, you know, uh, capture less to the downside with low vol. It's not more profitable when margins are compressing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the idea is we want to, re we don't necessarily think that we're always picking the best stocks, but in the long term, we're also trying to remove a lot of the stuff that we don't really want. So you get a portfolio that to put in perspective, the all in one ETS while having great diversification, you're going to get maybe 2000 to 2,500 underlying holdings. If you compare that to, you know, the most popular, um, passive ETF portfolio, they're looking at 20,000 to 25,000, right? So we're, we're taking that down to a scale of divided by 10. So we're basically trying to get the top decile and that's historically what tends to work for factors. Uh, and now we're doing it also with bonds incorporated in there and all this. So, okay, so let, me, let me ask you to bring bring the bond story in here. So so tell us a little bit about um, what we've seen here. I mean, there there were reports out of Fidelity not long ago. You know, if you don't like bonds now, you just don't like bonds. You know, there, there's that, sort of that mm -hmm. line of things. Credit quality in a lot of cases has been better. Um, sort of across the boards for many companies, not all, but just discuss some of the trends that you're seeing that are mm -hmm. you know, across the bond market that are involved, that you like, that are therefore in these mm -hmm. portfolios. Well, yeah. So I guess, you know, from an active perspective, the, 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 the calls that are being made via the ETFs that we hold in our all-in-one ETF portfolios, our global core plus bond ETF, which is managed by, you know, some of the best managers we have at Fidelity, Jeff Moore, Michael Plage and their team. Uh, you know, some of the calls that they've made recently, and I think I, I, I you know, obviously wholeheartedly agree with is, you know, historically, when we've had yield curve inversions, you generally want to start adding duration. You want to get better credit quality. You want to kind of uh, recession proof the portfolio a little bit. And realistically, you're not really missing out on a lot of yield by doing that right now. And it's not because high yield hasn't worked. Uh, but when you look at where spreads are right now, like you mentioned, credit, you know, credit has done better than what most have expected. I think a lot of that is probably due because a lot of them, I guess, refinanced at record low rates, you know, a few years back, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if, you know, earnings start to erode in some, for some of those, uh, junk bond issuers that they couldn't face potential issues. So, you know, we're, we're increasing credit quality, we're increasing duration a little bit, and we're actually seeing that in the flows also from an industry standpoint. So, uh, money market and cash alternatives remain super popular. But if you're looking at pure bonds, you're seeing selling of short-term bonds and buying of long-term bonds. So I think that's a transition that'll happen. Obviously, you know, it was, it was quite of a good trade since last October, right up until two weeks ago, uh, where you were positive since then. Um, but if you look at what we're earning from a yield standpoint, you look at the average, you know, price of the bonds in our portfolios, they're at a discount. Uh, that's why I think the statement saying like, you know, if you don't like bonds now, you never will. I mean, it's been a long time since we've had this type of opportunity set in bonds. From a percentile standpoint, we're in the top decile of the past 15 years for pretty much every sector in the fixed income space. Take us through the sleep at night uh, side of things. So this is the all-in-ones. You can also describe it, you know, in, in being able to have certain factors and sleeves added to an overall portfolio. But, but have they accomplished what an all-in-one is sort of, Presumably that's to kind of weather through most storms, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess maybe even taking a step back, uh, a lot of um, 
portfolios for Canadians are a mix of bonds and equities, right? Uh, whether it's a 60-40, 50-50, you know, however the split is. That was put under pressure a bit last year, right? With bonds and equities being negative and, and you know, bonds being negative for two years in a row. But now when we think of where we are now, uh, that 40% bond component is likely not what's going to be dragging the portfolio on a go forward basis. Um, so the equity side, you know, we, we've seen kind of this, we've had this discussion on defensive, maybe a little bit more on the bond side, we're quite positive. When you look at now these portfolios, it seems like it makes a lot of sense from a risk reward standpoint uh, on a go forward basis. And the all-in-ones have done exactly that since we've launched them. Uh, and, you know, the factor components have contributed like, like we've expected. So, you know, so far so good. Uh, but just the overall 60-40, I think is going to be working again when correlations become somewhat normalized, uh, which is kind of in a more normal inflation environment. Okay, that's great. Question rolling in here. Um, can you talk uh, more to offering these as both either funds or, or ETF? You, you mentioned that earlier, but can you just break that down a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. So that that's the efforts that, you know, we, we work with all types of advisors across the country. We want these products that we're extremely proud of to be available to as many people as possible. Um, so whether you're MFDA licensed, IROC licensed, there's a way to incorporate these in your client's portfolio. So you have access to them in a series B or series F fund code. You could trade them the same way as you would um, a regular fund, uh, but you're still getting a management fee that's, you know, very, you know, cost effective. We're talking about portfolios. If you look at the ETF series is around, you know, four, mid 40 basis points. And if you include a 1% trailer, you're at around 1.75, uh, right? So these are, you know, affordable. They're doing the work from an investment standpoint. Uh, and, uh, you know, they are, they're available for all types of advisors. And uh, once again, we've seen them incorporated in various ways. Standalone is, is you know, single holding account uses a allocation as a core and then building around it. Uh, I think there's various ways to, to use them too. What would you say as just a final thought to investors last few weeks of summer, it's busy fall for you, but um, markets, I, we've got Jackson Hole next week coming up. What, what would you say? Are we, are we bracing for things? What's, what's the positioning in the all-in-ones and other portfolios too, uh, mm -hmm. telling us about what's to come? I think it's, you know, I mean, uh, I feel like we're repeating a lot on the same same points, but really just how inflation develops and, and how it impacts, how we actually see this impact on the consumer and household. Because I don't think we've necessarily felt the real wrath, if you will, of higher rates yet. Um, and when we say, two, you know, even if we get 2% inflation, the reality is that still means that prices are going up and, you know, the basket of goods is still very expensive. Like, even if you go to 0% inflation, you know, your bacon is not going back from $10 to five or $6, right? It's still significantly higher. And that will eventually put a toll on, on consumers. Uh, and really keeping an eye out on, for example, our, our, our you know, delinquencies going up, are the average savings coming down drastically? Like are people pulling money out of their savings to, to, to you know, pay their mortgage and what the impact of that will be? And I think we're going to get a bit more insights into that as uh, the fall rolls around, you've actually seen over the past week, um, you know, companies like Canadian Tire, for example, kind of warning that, you know, there's some retail softness and you're, you're seeing, you know, some banks also saying, you know, there's less appetite for credit, for example. So I think that's really the, the, the macro side will be, 
will be really interesting. And at the same time, on the, on the flip side, on the fundamental earnings side, markets are expecting not much of a decline. So it, are, are we basically right in saying that this will be kind of a, we'll, we'll go through this and next year we're back to double digit earnings growth. Um, yeah, I think we're gonna get a lot more clarity this, this fall. Okay, all right, we look forward to that and, and appreciate you spending time here today with us, Etienne. All the best. My pleasure, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.